To support our work at the Izzy and Murtada Picture Show and the work of other independent creators like us, sign up to listen to the podcast on Nebula. Nebula is the creator-owned streaming platform that hosts great videos and podcasts like the one you're listening to now. Sign up today at nebula.tv slash picture show and you will get access to this podcast plus other great podcasts and videos. Sign up for Nebula and help support independent media creators. That's nebula.tv slash picture show. Hi, I'm Murtada. And I'm Izzy, and this is the Izzy Murtada Picture Show. Uh, welcome back to all of our listeners. Today, we are so, so, so excited to have Matt Baum with us. He is the author of Hi, Honey, I'm Homo, sitcom specials, and Queering the Ameri- and the Queering of American Culture. You might know him from his fantastic YouTube channel, where he talks about sitcoms and all things um, gay history in the media. Um, Matt, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. What a pleasure to be here. Um, so I want to actually talk a little bit about you and your history for a minute, because I've been watching your YouTube channel for a really long time, and I've always been curious just kind of what your background is and how you kind of came to the YouTube channel. Um, I saw in other views that you used to work in the film industry, um, and I'm curious about those experiences and how they may shape the way that you interpret media or the way that behind the scenes machinations um, affect a product or, and things like that. So um, are there any stories or lessons that you've, you took from that time when you're working on this book? Yeah. So I make a lot of videos about film and television history. And what's so weird about that is that as a kid, there wasn't a lot of television allowed in the house where I grew up. And I was also afraid of movie theaters and could not go to movie theaters until I was a teenager because they caused me so much anxiety. And so this thing that I had um, very little of when I was a kid, maybe that's what made me sort of a, I don't know, TV and movie anthropologist or just somebody who really um, became obsessed with them as a grown up. I was sort of discovering the stuff that I had missed when I was young. So I went to, weirdly, film school, <laughs> where I studied all that stuff, and then went out to LA and I worked at the Jim Henson Company, and uh, I worked in San Francisco at Lucasfilm. So entertainment was sort of a thing for me, um, and then increasingly I got more and more um, invested in marriage equality activism and queer causes and liberation in general made a kind of career jump over to doing communications for all that kind of stuff. Um, and then the more time I spent in that, the more time I saw like, oh, these are kind of the same business. Entertainment and politics are are kind of the same thing. Um, and so I went back to really doing the thing that I love most, which is spending time with movies and TV shows that just, it feels like hanging out with friends, um, but also just getting really interested in looking at the the making of like, how do those things come to exist? As I'm, as I know you are also very interested in. So, <laughs> you know, the story behind the story, the thing that really did it for me was the episode of the golden girls where Dorothy's lesbian friend, Jean comes to visit. Uh, I watched that episode and I just had to make a video about it. And uh, that was really, that kicked off um, my focus on um 
you know, the 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 entertainment, like the the characters who feel like friends who don't really exist, but they feel like friends. Um, and uh, yeah, then and the rest was history. That's amazing. I I similarly, so I majored in um, political science, like international relations, and I think about this all the time: how politics and <laughs> entertainment are basically the same thing. Yeah, yeah, it's wild. <laughs> um, so. I mean, you. This book specifically focuses on sitcoms, and I think that's a really interesting place to start for thinking about like how all of these conversations have changed over time. Like the entertainment landscape has changed so much since these sitcoms were putting up like Super Bowl numbers in the seventies yeah. and eighties. Um, I mean, do you think it's possible for television or even film to be as significant of a vehicle for challenging? mainstream and mass audiences in the same way they were uh, a few decades ago today? Like, how do you kind of see the evolution of that? I think it might be in the future. I think right now television or, you know, what we call television or TV shows, um, you know, in sort of the same way that we call the little computers, we carry around phones. Well, they're not really telephones anymore, but in the same way that I don't think television exactly what television used to be. Anyway, uh, I think it's at a real crisis right now. And I think there's a direction, there's a path where it could become as interesting and vital and powerful and as important as it once was, you know, in the in the Norman Lear days. And film could be as important as it was in the, the golden age and then the daring 70s. And, you know, there, there have been moments when film and, you know, the, you know, uh, new queer cinema of the 90s, there have been periods, there have been, there have been these little punctuation marks where media really accomplished a lot. And was out in front of everybody. And now I think it's way behind. But uh, I think I think we could go back. You know, I look at the 70s, just watching a yet another documentary about Norman Lear and uh, just how popular his stuff was and how terrifying it was to mainstream, to to the to the industry and to the people who's had their hands on the levers of power. Um, you know, and and now it's so much. It's been taken over so much by the money people that, uh, and you know, and that's not to say that business is bad because you know somebody has to pay, somebody has to keep the lights on. Right, right. But it's being driven so much by the quick buck and not the creators. Um, I think what we're seeing right now is, especially with, I, I think HBO is. Um, you know, if Quibi was the canary in the coal mine, I think HBO <laughs> is is the ostrich that somehow found its way into the coal mine. Yeah. yeah. And I think once that, you know, sorry to say, once that um, is laid to rest, I think something will come along and take its place because fundamentally people want to hear stories about themselves. And in that process, there are going to be those who want to tell stories that um, – are pushing the envelope and are daring in the same way that All in the Family was saying words that you couldn't say in the 1970s, mm -hmm. in the same way that Will and Grace was, you know, showing a friend circle that has always existed but had never been on television. I think eventually, um, whatever broadcast winds up being, however we watch serialized or something like it stories, short, serialized, easy to digest stories, whatever that winds up being in the next five, 10 years, um, there's going to be somebody in there doing something really bold. And I can't wait to find out who that is. So I I want to um, maybe get a little granular about that. So you said the media right now is way behind. Um, and I was, I'm kind of surprised by that a little bit. Um, not that I disagree per se, but I would want to know from you, what do you think is missing? What would you like to see right now um, in terms of queer representation that we're not seeing? 
You know, I think uh, a good example of that is the remake uh, or reimagining of Some Like It Hot. Um, and <laughs> let me explain. Because <laughs> I think that movie, that 1959, I think, 19, like when the movie happened, yeah. it's so daring and naughty and subversive. And I'm not talking about like sexually naughty, although it is that too. But the... Um, it just subversive and how it like kind of um, anticipates the the 1960s down to little touches like uh, you know kind of making fun of Cary Grant in that movie like mm-hmm. little little um mm-hmm. little little rule breaking moments and then of course big real rule breaking moments we're going to put men in drag and we're not even going to you know care about the the production code um and then the version of it that just got uh, put on Broadway is so nice it's lovely and kind and just just a, a lovely, beautiful, pleasant night of theater. And I like it. I had a very good time. I was moved to tears at some parts of that show, and I thought they did a great job. But in a million years, I wouldn't call it subversive. And I think right. that is in part... So this is a very long-winded answer to your question, but I think there are two things that are missing. One is um, subversive stuff, and the other is... And I'm not sure what form this takes in the media, but I think we've gotten very comfortable with uh, queer stuff. And I think we've gotten very comfortable in particular. Uh, I think we've, you know, we've had 20 really good years uh, of Ugly Betty and Glee and Schitt's Creek. And just, you know, there's kind of this Noah's Ark thing happening where every show, no matter what it is, it's got two of them. Well, you know, every <laughs> every combination of sexualities and gender identities, you're going you're gonna to find it pretty easily. And yeah. I think that has made us a little complacent when it comes to demanding more um for example it's tough for me to find a polycule on television right now like i don't see any poly people out there um you know and i i also something that i think television is really shy about is is the bad times um we're Mm -hmm. we're having a really nice victory lap and that victory lap just keeps going and going and going um and i'm remembering you know the you know, the 90s with like Boys Don't Cry, for example, um, you know, when a lot of our stories were about um, abuse and the 80s, when a lot of our stories were about how many of us were dying. Um, those were tough stories. And they, you know, I, and I certainly don't this isn't to say that, like, we need to go back to those times when everything was mm-hmm. a tragedy. Um, mm-hmm. But now it feels like queer to an extent is so welcomed into dominant culture that we're not acknowledging the pushback and the challenges. And I think that's why it's been so easy for in the last year or two um, for backlash to happen. We haven't talked about, there hasn't been as much about, you know, queer bashings or homophobia. And, you know, in particular, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to go off on a tangent right now, but mm-hmm. I don't think t- TV is talking enough about um, the abuse that trans people still face. Like, where is the yeah. You know, where's the series or film or whatever about the trans family that has to flee Florida because they could get arrested for finding gender affirming care for their kid? You know, like stories like that. I I, I think um, something subversive and something about the hard times, uh, those are harder to find than they were in like the Gregoraki days. Yeah. I mean, I right. know that um, uh, sort of um, your forte is, is um, sitcoms and basically American culture and our forte too in this podcast. But you know, I'm also a programmer at uh, at Newfest, which is the LGBTQ plus film festival here in New York. And I do see a lot of queer movies and I'm always very, um, it just makes me so optimistic when I see, I think there is great work being done in places like Brazil 
Um, for mm -hmm. instance, the last couple of years, there were so many, exactly what you were saying, subversive movies coming from Brazil about the pandemic and linking it back to the 80s and AIDS and um, Germany is doing some great work. So there is work there, but I agree with you that maybe um, we're not seeing it immediately in, sort of in popular culture, because in the end, those movies, wherever they come from, Brazil, Nigeria, um, Germany, whatever, they're very niche and they only find audiences just in festivals. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to see more of that stuff going from like the festivals that the the real the real dedicated the devotees go to see. Uh, you know, I'd love to find to see those stories finding their way to um, network stories or you know to cable or proceed. You know, where, wherever wherever those things wherever mainstream culture exists, if it exists at any point, because it's so fractured now. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I mean, I'm thinking about again, like how sitcoms kind of play into that because there is sort of I think a perception that like you can do more deep dive kind of um, subversive work in a show that might air on HBO and not on something that's going to air on network television and that wasn't always the case um, I'm, I'm wondering like did you ever watch uh, the reboot of One Day at a Time the the new one with Rita Moreno and yeah. all of that did you ever I, I feel like that's the closest we've kind of come with sitcoms doing that but I don't know if you had a take on that I, that's an interesting yeah that, I think that's absolutely true um uh, there's a aspect of that because they have I think a non-binary character on the show and mm -hmm. you know they talk about race in a way that's very frank uh, and they talk about discrimination and so yeah I think that's a great example and also a great example of a show that a lot of people missed because like I said I know because it's it it dumped it's dumped on Netflix I think they canceled it pretty quickly as well to, I think that got three seasons, mm. three, but three short seasons. So, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, it's tough to find any show that you can just approach a person, you know, whether it's a stranger or a friend, it's tough to find any show that you can be like, Hey, did you see that thing? And most, most of the time, my conversations are about, Oh, you got to watch this thing. It's, yeah. it's, 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 <laughs> and it's in the third yeah. season and it's great, but you've never heard of it rather than, yeah. well, we all watched Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman last night. Yeah, it's just, there's just there's just too much and there is no monoculture anymore, um, which, you know, has its positives and negatives. Mm -hmm. well, I think what's interesting, though, about watching a lot of these um, episodes that you mentioned is how they still actually feel subversive and the way that they're written, like maybe you know, the, the message they're trying to get out that mm -hmm. like gay people are human is like not as subversive as much anymore, but like, they're still kind of told in a very personal way that feel so resonant. Um, and I think that kind of speaks to where the culture is at now. And, um, so for example, you talk about like Disney intervening to bring Ellen's, uh, coming out episode to television and things like that. And obviously now like Florida and Disney is a whole topic in and of itself. Um, when you kind of, what is it like finding these parallels? I mean, how, how, do, what does that feel like to you when you start seeing things haven't changed that much? You know, there's an element of it that's actually kind of comforting to know that like people fundamentally haven't changed, that we're having the same conversations and fights and that the, um, I don't know, that that human, there's this continuity of human stories to tell. And often that story is, I just want to belong. I just want to find a place where I can get along with people and they and they want me to be there, um, you know, at the end of the day. And also, it's also a bit frustrating to find the stories that there are always going to be gatekeepers who are like, mm, but maybe not, maybe not you. 
maybe you don't belong, you know, and that there's always going to be that, that tug of war. But uh, I guess, you know, the the thing, one thing that it's kind of entrenched me is, is writing this book has sort of radicalized me uh, towards um, the importance of activism and being, um, and activism can be as simple as just watching a show like that, that is, that is a, it can be a radical act. If it's, it's a show that really needs you to, it needs your eyes on it. Um, That is a one small way to participate in some sort of change. But um, I think one of one of the big lessons from writing this book that that I just can't look away from is that positive change is great and it happens through dedicated work of tons and tons of people. And the moment anyone starts, the moment that anyone stops working on a cause, things start to slide back and victories take maintenance and that's not sexy and fun and exciting and you know, getting Will and Grace on television was great, but then there were a couple of years without any gay characters, out, you know, or successful shows with queer characters on on broadcast. Uh, there was, it was all on cable. Um, so a win is good. And then we mm-hmm. got to keep going. We got to keep saying, and now what's next? And now how do we protect this? And how do we make sure there's going to be more of this? Uh, I, I think one of the one of the really unfortunate things of the last 20 years is that a lot of Queer organizations um, either shut down or consolidated or, or scaled back because there were just fewer fights. And boy, oh boy, it sure would be helpful to have them around right now. Um, I want to ask you about right now, and is that sort of like an indication of, to your point, what's next? So a show that I love and I'm watching now is The Other Two. Um, and it is a sitcom format. It is on HBO or Max or whatever that place is called now. But it's also, it has gay characters in it, but it's not really, I don't think that that's what makes it special. It's sort of like, it's skewering of culture, like of things like Angels in America or Brokeback Mountain or things that, you know, people know and can, and can immediately get the joke about them, but it's making fun of them. But it's also making fun of queer people and sort of like the way we behave with each other in the culture, how we, you know, react to things. And I'm, you know, I want to ask you about that show or about generally kind of sort of like its premise. Is that the next shift? Are we sort of um, beyond representation to now we are making fun of ourselves. And is that a good thing or not? Oh, I think that's, yeah, I think there's something really exciting happening with comedians like John Early, for example, who are um, comfortable making us uncomfortable. Uh, that's that's great. I, I, I think that's really wonderful. And that's the, the kind of subversive, you know, the stuff that I'm looking for in, you know, the next Norman Lear, for example, not to say that John's you know, the next Norman, he's the, he's, he's the first him, but anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, um, I, I think a, a, a skewering is good and the, that we can talk about gay stuff is great. Um, you know, I, I, I always go back to like Glee, for example, which was so um, needed at the time and so generous and uh, at showing gay stories and showing gay victories and gay triumphs, uh, fantastic. And now I think it's very nice that we can inspect. Or um, what was the Billy Eichner show that um, it, was it? it oh, I difficult want to say ordi- people. Difficult people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I always called it ordinary people. No, I- yeah, <laughs> that's another great one. Uh, so yeah, like um, acknowledging acknowledging our queer culture, warts and all. Uh, I'm so happy to see TV doing that. Like that's the kind of subversive thing that. Um, I think is actually productive. And there are going to be people who are like, oh, but this paints us in a bad light. And what are the straights going to think? And this is going to scare people and make us think that we're terrible people. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's, I, you know, I don't think single-handedly one show, you know, in the same way that like 
All in the Family isn't responsible for popularizing racism in the 1970s. Uh, I think on balance, All in the Family did more to um, respond to and refute uh, bad behavior. And I think the same thing with like shows about like venal, uh, jealous, damaged uh, queer people uh, and people in like because those are shows about or Veep, for example. That's a show where just like everyone's a terrible person. Yeah. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I think <laughs> I think acknowledging uh, the horror of of bad people is is. I, I think good entertainment. Yeah. yeah. And this is something we've kind of talked about on the podcast before, which is like that, like queer people are the most discerning audiences for queer entertainment, obviously. Mm -hmm. So like <laughs> there's also kind of another layer of it, which is that the recognition of oneself can kind of cause resentment a little bit um, oh, yeah. in a very uncomfortable way, which is, also interesting and you kind of talk about this a little bit um with respect to things like will and grace um do you do you want to talk about that and how how that kind of plays out in sitcoms yeah will and grace is such an interesting one and modern family because mm -hmm. i remember when will and grace premiered the first season and i remember the backlash on what the internet was in 1998 uh you know i, I just remember the, the queer people saying like especially gay men well that's you know he's too femme or he's too mask and you know they're, they're just two stereotypes of two separate extremes i don't remember as much a complaint about how white the show was but um that that really wasn't a conversation that enough people were having back then at all anyway uh yeah i, I think a, a lot of queer people were very very critical of will and grace and uh you know you can find like media coverage of the time about what cookie cutters they are and I think to an extent that's true. It's certainly not telling the full extent of the queer experience, nor was it trying to. Uh, it's two relatively comfortable, well-to-do white men in New York. So <laughs> we're not going to get the we're not going to get everyone's story in there. Anyway, um, yeah, I think um, gay audiences were were awfully harsh at first uh, with that show and many others. Uh, and the thing that kind of turned it around for me at the time was I had a professor at uh, in college who wrote some op-ed about it, uh, about the backlash. And he was saying, uh, this was for a gay newspaper in Boston, for Bay Windows. And he said, I can't believe how many of you are lying about not knowing a ton of people like that. And it's, you know, <laughs> it is true. And I think part of that was the recognition. Part of it was people being like, oh no, I see myself in Jack or I see myself in how timid Will is or whatever. And uh, and I, I I don't like this, this uh, <laughs> unpleasant mirror that's being held up to me in I think actually a similar way to um there's a great story about all in the family about um how they got a letter from somebody who said that he was shaving in the mirror and saw Archie Bunker looking back at him and he didn't like it uh mm. what a great like moment of recognition of waking up and being like "Ooh, that's what I'm doing so I think that's part of what was happening with Will and Grace because again those are those are flawed characters as they should be in drama they are, or yeah. you know entertainment in general they're flawed characters. And so if you see yourself in Jack, you might see yourself doing something you don't really like about yourself. And I think that's, I think that's good. I think that's healthy. I think that's growth. Uh, and same thing with Modern Family, the the um, dislike of those guys on Modern Family among gay audiences, first because the show wouldn't let them kiss. Uh, and that was very frustrating. I think legitimately very <laughs> frustrating. Yeah. Uh, but also I think that they're, they're so, they're so suburban and white bread and um, they're so normal. Uh, I, in, you know, my radical queer friends couldn't stand them 
And I, I get it. I get it. They're also, yeah. they also seem like lovely people to just have, you know, a potluck with, but uh, you know, sometimes you got to throw some bricks through some windows guys. So yeah. that sort of reminds me of like, I always thought of modern family as like a show for straight people um, that has gay people in it. And so that's, mm -hmm. that's sort of my question to you. Like I was talking to, to a friend, I was in London and Brokeback Mountain is now in London as a play. And they're like, you know, do you want to go see this? And and he was like, no, this is for straight people. It's not for us. It's like, you know, we've seen that 20, 25 years ago. I don't I don't know mass. I don't know however long ago Brokeback Mountain was. But anyway, <laughs> um, so is that maybe why we as queer, like Izzy said, discerning audiences don't react to shows like Modern Family? Um, is that, you know, we might think of them as this is for the straights. I think they're will never be a successful mainstream show that is only for the queers because there aren't a lot of us. I think something can be both. I think it can be for both straight and gay audiences. I, I think that, that is possible. I think Will and Grace is a good example because it is Will and Grace. It's not It's not Will and Jack. Uh, and I, I think Will and Grace worked because there was a perfect balance. And I think James Burroughs gets a lot of credit for this. It was a perfect balance of um, stories, stories that gay audiences would be like, ha I get it. And stories that straight audiences would be like, ha I get it. And sometimes when it's really firing on all cylinders, one audience will cross over the other audience and the, the straight audiences will be like, oh, okay, I get what it's like to have that gay story or whatever. You know, Will's um, malaise about being broken up with, I actually, I do kind of get that. Um, so yeah, I think there are some, there are some stories that are, that are largely just for the gays. Like, you know, going back to the Gregor Rocky story, I don't know a lot of straight audiences <laughs> that were going to those films, but, yes. uh, <laughs> but God bless them. I know that there were, I got, and I'm very happy for them. Um, <laughs> the, the, but, the Parker Posey fan club. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's a great example because I think Parker Posey um, is, and you know, like, I don't know, the, the, the people, performers like her can have a great, huge, gay fan group but that's only gonna get you so far you know <laughs> yeah yeah you're only gonna be able to get so many names on that list yeah. so anyway i think there, there will be gay stories yeah it seems like you gave a lot of examples of things that kind of go the other way which are straight stories that are for gay people it's like that's bewitched that's kind of that's golden yeah. girls in a way um and how yeah, those things kind of cross over if you want those things to last on on a real like a large broadcast medium whether you're you're broadcasting literally you know over the air or you know a large something that's broadcasted kind of metaphorically through through popular film um you you need a big enough audience yeah and uh you you do that by signaling to straight audiences this is also going to be for you i think you know i really liked bros i thought bros was a great film and i think it was presented in a way that it was never going to work um Gays, I, I know a lot, and this is a great example, actually, of gays, you know, in the cir circular firing squad. Um, <laughs> Dude, it was like, the marketing. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and it's, I think it, I think bros would work, and I hate to say this, if they really wanted bros to be a mainstream hit, he needed to have a, a straight woman best friend, or even a straight man best friend, you know, or something that says to the modern family audience, Okay, don't worry. You're you're also gonna get you're gonna get your stuff in here too, and I I don't think that would have been a good thing. I think Bros is great as a story about uh, about queer life and focusing on that, but I think the expectation that it was gonna be a breakthrough rom com, 
I think that's an optimism that just was not founded in reality. Sorry to say. Um, I want to go back to something you said about, you know, the audience thing of like, what is a queer show? What's a, a show for queer people? Like I always thought the queerest sitcom, in my opinion, is Frasier, which is about two straight men. But for yeah. all intents and purposes, they're a gay couple. But they made them brothers and they gave them, yeah. you know, straight love interests and whatever. But who cares? The show's um, heart is this relationship, which is like a marriage you know, with all the competition and the one-upmanship and the, all of the things that, you know, gay couples um, do. And so that maybe that's, you know, the point you were making is that you need to make it to to give the, you know, the straights basically, hey, this show is not really gay, but then just make it gay. Because I think everybody behind the scenes on that show was queer. There were a lot of up, queer people. You have yeah. to serve up um, Niles and Daphne as well. <laughs> Yeah, totally. I think by the time Frasier was really hitting and like Niles and Daphne, like actually, you know, you might think of it as jumping the shark when their relationship actually starts happening. Uh, but anyway, I think, boy, I think Frasier could have gotten away with making Niles bisexual. And um, I don't know, like the Daphne thing winds up, she, the two of them, I would have loved, honestly, to see a Shit's Creek situation where Niles and Daphne try to get together. They're like, whoops, this thing, you know, it's kind of Sam and Diane. <laughs> we got the thing that we wanted and we hate it. So Niles yeah. and Daphne get together. They're like, ooh, this isn't good. And um, then they become fast friends. And Niles is bisexual. Maybe Daphne's bisexual too. Who knows? But um, I think they could have gotten away. You know, with I always got it from Roz. I always got it oh, from Roz. Wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Honestly, Roz and like, there's a, a parallel universe where Roz and Bulldog not only get together and have a kid, but um, then go off and co-parent their friends and they are just sexually adventurous in their own lives. And I, I think there's a version of Frasier where that happens that I think would yeah. be very entertaining. Anyway, we were never going to get that in the 90s. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And some of the actors were gay. I mean, Joan Mahoney, who played the dad, the straightest of all of them was gay. And and I think that I don't know his name, but the guy who played Bulldog was gay, too. Um, oh, yeah. Dan, Dan Butler, Butler, I think. Yeah. 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 And, you know, of course, David Hyde Pierce and yeah. uh, those without saying <laughs> yeah, Joe Keenan, who wrote some of the best episodes. Uh, there's so much there's so much gay energy happening on that show. Yeah. Uh, really would have been nice if they could have done a little bit more. But also, you know, in the this is largely in the um, I don't know, I, I was going to call it the the swamp of Ellen. And I don't refer to that. I mean, like <laughs> Ellen herself was causing the problem there. I think it was the culture and industry was really trudging through the muck of dealing with its own homophobia. And I think I, I think there was a lot of um, they were they were on high alert on Frasier for being perceived as too gay in the same way that like this is going to be a weird thing to compare it to, but it's like Star Trek The Next Generation in that mm. in like one of their earliest episodes, they had to make it clear that both Data and Yar, the two queerest coded characters on the show, uh, are capable of having heterosexual relationship. That's like, it's episode two that they have them have sex. And I think that was very deliberate to be like, but nothing but nothing gay about these, you know, she, she might be a tough lady with a short haircut, but she's not a lesbian. Uh, <laughs> I think Star Trek was unfortunately on guard against that and i think fraser was on guard against that and I, a lot of shows were in the 90s yeah i mean i constantly forget how ellen basically just disappeared from culture for like years yeah, yeah. like i Isn't i remember it wasn't finding nemo kind of framed as like oh she's come back like it's ellen again remember her 
Yeah, yeah. She really had her time, literally in the wilderness. She like left LA and was living in Ojai, I think, for like a couple of years and was just out of everything because she had a rough, rough time. Yeah. I mean, imagine, you know, there's this 2020 report where Barbara Walters opens it saying something like, imagine the most difficult choice you've ever had to make being broadcast in front of millions of people. And it's like, yeah, that is tough. And also, Barbara, you're participating in that by saying that. But anyway, you know. <laughs> and then so she goes, poor Ellen goes through that. And then, uh, you know, poor Ellen, she's fine now. But she goes through <laughs> that and then essentially gets told by um, by all of media, we don't like you. We don't want you. You've done this incredibly personal thing. You've bared your personal soul here and, uh, and, and now go away. And so I understand why she wanted to step out of the step out of the limelight for a little while. Uh, and, and that wasn't entirely by choice because people didn't want to hire her, which is wild when you think of like how people will chase her uh, now and like the the um, how intensely how intensely powerful she is in the industry. Uh, yeah, that uh, she had she had a real fall uh, after that after the show canceled. They tried to give her another sitcom that didn't work out. Um, she has an incredibly unpleasant public breakup. Oof. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, yeah, Finding Nemo happens. And, you know, it's it's it was sheer luck that, uh, you know, animation has such a long production time that they happened to get her when she was when b before she had really crashed. And, you know, I think it would have been very easy for Disney to have been like, oh, no, you're not hiring her. She was right. very difficult. But Pixar was yeah. fortunately independent enough from Disney and Ellen wasn't uh, pariah enough at the time that they got her in when they could. And then. That was a great part of the the redemption tour. That also, and that she did a stand up tour around the same time. So she toured with um, a live show that I think really. I think helped. that was on HBO, right? Yeah, yeah. They taped one. Yeah. It's very good. She's she's very funny, and very personable, and she acknowledges the gay stuff, but doesn't dwell on it. Um, and you know, by doesn't dwell on, it, I mean like there there are jokes that are not about there there are jokes that are universal. I but I would say she's clearly not afraid of it. And I think when she comes back, when Ellen came back for her talk show. Um, there was a very different Ellen that we saw, someone who was not afraid to talk about being a lesbian and uh, was a lot more comfortable with it. Uh, and, and honestly, a lot more comfortable than I think a lot of people would have been if they went through that experience and, you know, four years later had to go on national television and talk about it again. Um, she clearly did a lot of work uh, on herself to get her to a place where, you know, she was was happy relatively uh, with who she was. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd love to pivot to talking about your YouTube channel a little bit. Oh yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I'm just I'm curious about the difference between writing for YouTube and writing a book. I mean, how does that approach change if you can't use clips? If you're if you have to kind of use a different voice, how did you approach that process? Yeah, well, fortunately, I have a lot of experience writing for you know doing journalism work. Um, which is something, you know, I've got a lot of, um, you might call them bad habits. They're not exactly bad, but, you know, I'm doing like the inverted pyramid in journalism where you start with the most important thing and then work your way down as the article goes to the least important thing. And that's not a great way to write for YouTube. And I don't think it's a great way to write for a book. So um, a lot of the techniques actually were kind of similar. Um, the way that I tend to write is I will just dump a whole bunch of material down into a document or sometimes onto note cards or on a whiteboard or wherever. I'll dump a whole bunch of stuff down and then start basically putting a star next to the stuff that I think is the best, the most interesting, the funniest, uh, the most emotional, whatever it is. 
And then somehow through that process, uh, I start figuring out what order to tell the story in. And in that respect, whether it's YouTube, a news article that's 500 words, or uh, a book that's 80,000, um, it's not a terribly different process, just there's more of it. Uh, mm -hmm. Something that I really was happy about from going YouTube to book that I really was delighted by was, for one thing, opportunity to tell stories that I just didn't tell on YouTube and to expand on a lot of stuff that I just didn't on my channel. Um, but also to have more of a continuous arc. Like when I do my YouTube videos, you know, I'll do a video about Paul Lind and then I'll do a video about Charles Nelson Reilly and then I'll do a video about, oh, I don't know, who is the equivalent of that in the 90s? I guess we really didn't have a Charles Nelson Reilly of the 90s. Other than Charles, who was on Drew Carey show and, and X Files yeah. and stuff. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, so I'll do I'll do videos about these discrete topics. But being able to tie things together in um, in the book and be like, okay, so Ellen had this terrible experience, and it seemed like it really um, screwed up the TV industry. Um, but there was something waiting in the wings. And that's what the next chapter is going to be about. And then we could go on to, to Will and Grace and also do callbacks. You know, in the in the um, 90s, I can refer back to, hey, remember where we were just 30 years ago? Because we were saying this about gays in the 60s. Well, now this is parallel and shifted in the, you know, so being able to do that like whole arc of history was uh, very, very fun. How does the audience change? Like, are there different people coming up to you about the book than have come up to you about your YouTube channel or like, how do they talk to you about those things differently? That's an interesting question. I think there's a lot of overlap actually. When I do one of my readings or I go to like a book event, um, there are a lot of folks there who know me from YouTube and they like the YouTube and I'm very happy that um, they have come with me into the book world as well. And, and I'm really delighted by that. Um, but I think something that I'm seeing with the book is there are a lot of folks who just, you know, th they don't spend all their all their day, all their time on YouTube. <laughs> so sometimes that's a um, slightly older demographic or it's people who are just a little bit less off or a little less online. Um, but they're folks who watch these TV shows because I, sitcoms, one of the reasons I wanted to focus on sitcoms is how accessible they are, how easy it is to just sit down and watch them. So many people have watched a sitcom at some point in their life. So um, I'm seeing people who are not maybe as as digital as, uh, you know, we internet entities are, uh, you know, folks who will instead of like, I'm, I'm going to lean on stereotypes here, but like hunched over a computer screen in a basement, uh, like, you know, like a cave troll. Uh, instead, these are people who <laughs> might go out to a farmer's market, you know, like people who <laughs> exist in real life. Wow. <laughs> I'm actually getting to meet those folks now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel very much like I'm I'm like rubbing my eyes and blinking like at the end of, of Wally. I'm like coming off the internet space, <laughs> like setting foot on real ground here. And I'm like, oh, books, a thing you hold in your hands. Wow. Yeah. Is there like a watch list somewhere where people can watch all of these episodes and find them on streaming? Is Ooh, that yeah. collected somewhere? That is a great idea. I absolutely should do that. I should put together. So some of these shows are a little harder to watch than others. Um, you know, I, for example, like Murphy Brown, I, 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 I talked a little bit about Murphy Brown in the book and very frustratingly because I think of the all the Motown music, which is great. Um, it's very uh, hard for that to find a streaming home. So but most of those shows, yeah, um, I think th that is that is a wonderful idea. And hopefully in the time between when we record this and when it goes out. <laughs> Uh, I'll have a moment to go to, so the website for the book is gaysitcoms.com. And 
what I'm going to do, because you've just put the idea in my head, is uh, I'm going to put together a little playlist of here's where you can watch all the shows or as many of the shows from the book as as you can watch. And they're all like fractured on different streaming services. But um, right. they, they're more or less, by and large, for now, for as long as it makes money for, you know, the money people, uh, they they are available to obtain through various means. Perfect. Um, yeah, so I'll put that. Thank you for thank you for that idea <laughs> that I'm going to steal and put no, it on the website. Gaysitcoms.com. That's that's where I'll put the watch list. Perfect. We've come to the time on our podcast where we turn it over to Betty Davis. But before we get there, I just want to go back to something Matt said earlier when when you mentioned John Early, and I just want to say that John Early has um, a comedy show or a comedy special that's on HBO right now. And if you're looking for something very queer, something that sort of skewers queer people, I think it's called John Early now more than ever. So um, so watch that um, before we start dumping on people. But here you go. Let's go to Betty. What a dump. Matt, this is the time on, on the podcast every week where we hand it over to Betty Davis and her famous line, what a dump. And... Um, each one of us will sort of like uh, dump on something that we're mad at or <laughs> we don't like or something like that. That's that's happening right now in the culture. Um, so who wants to go first? I'll go first because I've got one right at the tip of my tongue. And Matt, this will give you some time to think about something <laughs> if you don't already have one. Um, mine is David Zaslov and everything that is going on with TCM. That was last that week, Izzy. <laughs> is it happening? Whatever. It's, ha- it's still happening. Um, they, yes, the way that they're laying off people, it's just forecasting some very terrible things happening to that network. Um, and if if you're interested in this, the topic of this episode, like I know you're probably the type of listener who cares about watching things that were made in the past and engaging with it and understanding why it's important. And that's what TCM does for classic film. And it's really upsetting to see these guys who don't care about anything other than the bottom line, just uh, carving it to pieces and making it harder than ever to access all of this work. Um, so that sucks. And I, yes. I dump on that. That sucks. Yes. It's David Zaslav, the sequel, but I guess it bears repeating. Yes. Absolutely. So my dump for the week is the marketing of the Barbie movie. So Matt mentioned bros and I and I said that probably what killed that movie and alienated so many people and made people frankly hate it is the marketing. They marketed it as this is the first mainstream gay movie and every gay person just was like, fuck you, whatever. And I think Barbie is doing something like that. They are saturating the market. People are worried. I, I was excited for this film. But now all I see is there is a Barbie car and daily pictures of Margot Robbie wearing pink. And like, it's all about the merchandise. And I know it's about a toy and they're trying to sell the toys. But maybe settle down a little bit on the marketing until the movie is out. So, pe- so you don't alienate people with your marketing. I'm still excited. I'm going to see um, the movie when it comes out, but I think I'm just going to mute the word Barbie on social media so I don't see all this marketing bullshit that they (laughs) are just throwing out. That's my dump. (laughs) Nice. All right, Matt, what's your dump? 
All right. Uh, what a dump the way that um, series are just disappearing from streaming services these days. I didn't even have a chance to watch Willow and now it's gone. And so uh, on, on one hand, I want to shake my fist angrily at um, every executive who is taking a tax break. Uh, I guess I guess the real villain here is capitalism, because whatever system makes it profitable for them to remove stuff that we thought we were getting when we signed up for a streaming service, uh, that that needs to stop. Uh, and uh, I give a, a, a big friendly thumbs up and a big smile to all the pirates who were able to grab that stuff before it disappeared, because... Those oh, are the yeah. only ones who are stewarding our culture at this point. Yeah. The, the people yeah. who have the have the rights to it can't be trusted. So uh, thank God for the fans and, and the people who who stole it for for us. Yay! Yay! Yeah. Pirate! Shout out to <laughs> shout out to OK.ru where I watch yeah. literally everything. <laughs> I mean, you know, growing up in Sudan, that was the only way I could watch anything was pirating. So the reach of pirates is appreciated. I think. All over the yeah. world. <laughs> Modern yes. Robin Yay, Hood. pirates. <laughs> yes. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations on your wonderful book. Um, let us know where people can find you and what's coming up next for you. Fantastic. Yes. Uh, so if you are interested in the book, Hi, Honey, I'm Homo, a history of queer characters on American sitcoms, gaysitcoms.com is the place to get all the info about that. Uh, I've got... Um, I'll have a list of recommended episodes very soon. Uh, also upcoming events where I'm going to be doing talks and tour dates and stuff like that. Uh, we're working on some more stuff for the fall. So hopefully uh, we'll have even more of those to announce soon. You know, so get a signed copy and personalized copy there. Gaysitcoms.com has all that. And then I've got a YouTube channel where you can watch all of my videos about entertainment history from a queer perspective. So I'm just, I'm working on a Norman Lear video right now. I'm doing one about the show Brothers, this kind of semi-forgotten sitcom show, uh, uh, Showtime sitcom from the 80s that had, uh, that was focused on a gay character. Uh, and then, gosh, what else am I working on? Uh, I'm doing one about uh, Tales of the City and how that almost brought down PBS in the 90s. Uh, so anyway, find all that and more uh, on my YouTube channel, which is just my name. It's Matt Baum. You can find that there. And you can also go to mattbound.com. I got a newsletter. I got social media. I got I got all the internet stuff. Oh, and also <laughs> Patreon. You can get a Patreon. I, I do uh, bonus videos where I share even more clips. I just shared um, a video about this show, Turn On, which is one of the most notorious disasters of television history. It was 1968 or 9. And uh, ABC tried to do kind of a laugh-in sequel. And uh, it was a disaster. And so I... <laughs> obtained uh the I, I finally have a copy of the entire first episode and uh it's even worse than you can imagine so anyway i just put a whole video about that up on my patreon oh my god i'd never even heard of that that's that yeah, sounds very either very fun <laughs> it was canceled during its first commercial break some stations didn't come back oh from commercial oh wow yeah. wow. <laughs> yes. wow i yeah. Has that ever happened? I've never heard of that happening before. <laughs> no, it has. I, I'm, it possible it might, but that's the only show that I know of that um, during the, and some stations <laughs> didn't do this. Some stations didn't air it, but uh, there's this one station in Ohio where the station manager like literally pulled the plug. And for the rest of the broadcast, that half hour, they just showed a black screen with some organ music playing. Wow. So, <laughs> yes. Okay. But having seen the episode, what's more entertaining, the episode or the organ music? Oh boy, here's the thing is, um, <laughs> so the show, the, the vibe of the show is they said, this wasn't actually true, but they said this show is generated completely by computer and in a weird way, it like anticipates like AI generated content today. But um, the gimmick of the show was, oh, it's all computer generated. It wasn't really, that was just what they said. 
Right. And um, so it's really fractured and it's like this dreamy stream of consciousness comedy that doesn't make any sense and isn't very funny. And so I think I might actually go for the organ music instead. <laughs> there you go. Wow. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, it was such a pleasure talking to you. This has been so much fun. I enjoyed every minute. Um, you can find the show, follow it on social media at I am picture show. You can follow me on uh, Twitter at M E underscore says on Instagram at Mortada underscore E. And you can read my criticism at the AV club and variety where I recently actually reviewed that John early HBO max specials. Uh, so uh, read that at variety. Uh, yeah. And you can find me at be kind rewind on YouTube. I have a video coming out. Friday this well as of recording on Friday uh about like book club cinema aka like all of those older lady ensemble movies um so yeah anyways it'll be great thank you Matt for joining us and we'll see everyone next week Bye. thanks so much for having me